Before we kick into today's episode, another episode in the Exponential series here on The Innovation Show, I want to thank our sponsor, Zai, boldly transforming the future of financial services with a suite of embedded products and services, enabling businesses to manage multiple payment workflows and move funds with ease. You can find them at hellozai.com. Today's book explores the 27 most important trends shaping the future of the global economy. This visually striking book draws on oceans of data we're all surrounded by to extract insights about where we are and where we are headed. It is a must read for entrepreneurs, executives, policymakers and regulators and anyone trying to make sense of the future. The futurist Alvin Toffler once wrote, information overload occurs when the amount of input to a system exceeds its processing capacity. Decision makers have fairly limited cognitive processing capacity. Consequently, when information overload occurs, it is likely that a reduction in decision quality will also occur. Today's guest eases information overload, makes signal from the noise, and helps us make better decisions. We welcome SenseMaker, founder and editor-in-chief of Visual Capitalist, and the author of this visually striking book, Signals, the 27 Trends Defining the Future of the Global Economy. Jeff Desjardins, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, and I really am happy to be here. I was going to jump into the shape of the book and the layout of the book, but I am also intrigued because for any of our audience who is on a platform like LinkedIn, for example, they have definitely seen a visual capitalist infographic. They've definitely seen your work shared. They've probably actually used the odd infographic in one of their PowerPoint decks or keynote decks, trying to convince somebody on a board to invest in a new trend. And I thought we'd share the origins of that because you are the founder and the editor of chief. Where did that come from? What was the spark? What was the initial idea behind Visual Capitalist? The initial idea goes back um, close to a decade. And you know, I found myself in the same situation that many people find themselves in today, which is that you know, you're trying to um, you're trying to convey information in a way that's digestible and, and that people understand and can look at and get what's going on right away. And at that time, I was working with a bunch of small companies uh, in a consulting capacity, and I and I was trying to at the time they were trying to get their story in front of investors. And so I was working with them, and, and the idea of taking the, taking their information and conveying it visually, you know, kind of came across my desk. And so we've been experimenting with this for a long time. But we started by taking companies' press releases and trying to visualize them. Didn't work so great. Taking the company as a whole and trying to visualize their entire story also didn't work that great. What turned out to be the thing that really caught everybody's eyes and and got things going, and this is kind of the the nugget that we built Visual Capitalist from, was we started visualizing industry trends as a whole, um, sort of the rising tide that floats all boats, the the big mega trends that these companies are are building uh, off of, right, and, and that you know they're they're standing on the shoulders of giants. And as soon as we took some of those trends and um, and really conveyed what was happening, all of a sudden we got tons of inbound interest and you know lots of people uh, writing to us and saying, "Hey, can you can you look at this? Can you look at that?" And um, and I think that's partially because 
you know, when you're talking about a company's press releases or a company itself, if there's a bit of a aspect of, of promotion there, right? You're talking about, you, you know, you're selling your book, you're selling a company uh, and, and people are aware that you're selling, right? But when you're talking about an industry or a trend or, or something that's wider and more all-encompassing, um, inherently, it, it kind of includes everyone and it touches everyone, right? Um, some of the trends that we'll look at today have have touched everybody, right? Whether it's um, you know, an aging population or, or whether it's, uh, you know, long-term trends of interest rates or, and, and people might not think of them in this way, but th these things influence everything that we do every day. The book's in a way deceiving because it has so much data, but it comes across in these beautiful graphics. And for our audience, those of you who are listening and the majority of our audience are listeners. We will do our best to be empathetic towards you. And Jeff, I'm asking you to do that, which is difficult because the graphics are so beautiful. And I do recommend you join us on YouTube on the YouTube channel, where I'm going to share some of these graphics and Jeff will talk to them. And they really do pack in some amount of data. So let's start with something you mentioned there, which is the aging population, Jeff, that would be a great place to start. If I were to choose an all encompassing trend that really affects everybody and is going to be something that um, continues to impact the world for a long time in, in really profound ways, um, I, I would choose this trend. And this is actually what we opened the book with, which is called an aging world. And it sounds um, at its outset, it, it sounds really, you know, pretty innocent, right? And it's something that we've been living with for a long time. Um, healthcare has gotten better, all, all these different ways that, uh, you know, people are, are uh, more healthy, uh, all, all these different kind of little things can all add up in, in this really profound way, which is simply that um, from 1970 until today, the median age has increased from about 21 and a half years to 30.9 years uh, globally. And if you go forward to 2100, it's projected to go to 41.9 years. And the result of this is um, really interesting and important to think of for uh, decision makers and, and people all over the world, because um, first of all, the global population of people that are 65 years and older is going to more than double over the period of now to 2050. So we're going to have 703 million people uh, you know, today that are 65 years and older, but in just 30 years, we're going to have uh, more than double that 1.55 billion, um, a, a big portion of the uh, of the globe that's that's over age. And, and this is going to be um, what the other interesting thing is that geographically, this is spread very differently amongst the world, right? Um, in Africa, right now, the median age is close to uh, around 20 years old. But if you go to Europe, if you go to North America, and these other places, um, the median age is much higher uh, in the 30s and 40s. And, um, and some countries are going to be um, particularly affected by this based on their demographic profiles as well. South Korea is an interesting one. Um, it, it's going to go from having uh, 22 uh, older individuals per every 100 working age in, individuals. And that's going to go from 22 to 79, right? So that's more than a triple amount of older people that you're supporting uh, within the country. Uh, so there's different changes like this that are really going to affect some of these uh, some of these countries. And that leads nicely to the idea of the retirement gap, because, again, some countries are aware of this, we cover this before in the show, for example, Germany are making big plays for this in the future. But places like Japan, for example, where there's a huge amount of elderly, and that's a good thing. 
but they have to be supported because if they're supported by pensions I often think of pensions almost like a Ponzi scheme or kicking the can down the road you're gonna have to deal with it at some stage and this is certainly the case with the retirement gap this graphic is absolutely beautiful and this is an area where I, I, like personally I think that governments struggle because governments tend to be elected on in democratic countries right they tend to be elected on fairly short time frames right create results in four years or three years or whatever right but the problem is is that the pension situation um it seems like you can push the can down the road um, just a little bit, right? Oh, well, this isn't coming to fruition yet. But um, but yeah, what's happening is that um, there's a massive, uh, you know, World Economic Forum and, and different groups have looked at this. And there's just a massive saving shortfall within, uh, within these pension programs. Um, and, and the really uh, short version of it is that um, globally, uh, and of course, you can look at this by individual countries as we do in the graphic. But but globally, right now, that shortfall is 67 trillion, and that's going to keep on expanding till to over 400 trillion dollars by 2050. And these numbers are going to become—I mean, they're obviously really big numbers, right? Um, that is a massive, massive amount. Um, but at some point, they're going to create a situation that it, things are going to be unsustainable in certain places that, that don't treat this with uh, some level of importance. Some of the trends that you mentioned in the book, for example, improving health, end of sickness in many ways, which is a great thing, but the aging population means there's more people on the planet. And as a result, we're having population, but then we're having less children. But at the same time, we're having a mass push towards urbanization and thus a reinvention of what a city looks like. And you cover this in great detail in the book. When you think about population distribution, I, I think it's really important to remember that, um, you know, one thing that we write in the book is that the motivations of Nigerians that are moving to improvised uh, villages outside of Lagos, um, which is the big mega city there that will eventually, actually some people think it'll reach 100 million people by, uh, by the 2100. Um, but 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 the the fact that you have these uh, their motivations why they're moving there um, is actually very similar to why you know probably why we or our ancestors moved to the cities that we live in today or uh, in the 1700s why um, people in England started moving to cities during things like the Industrial Revolution right so this is um, the reasons are not no different right they're they're looking for uh, a better life for their family and so on and, and so what happens is these cities tend to cluster. And uh, there's a bunch of different reasons for that, but um, you know some of the more obvious ones are uh, for economic reasons. Um, it makes sense. There, there's social ties between these different cities as well, uh, cultural ties. Um, but yeah, what happens is that at the beginning um, of urbanization, uh, you, you know, there's only so many people moving to cities, and as you move forward on this uh, this S-like curve towards the saturation point, there's many different cities that are clustered around a certain area. So people that are uh, in the US will be familiar with the Northeast, you have, you know, New York and Boston and Philadelphia and Washington, DC, and all these places in one small uh, spectrum where if you want to go from New York to go visit your, uh, your mother in Washington, DC, uh, you know, it's a short little train ride away, right? Um, similarly, this is happening in China right now. And China is uh, not yet at the uh, saturation stage that um, that we all think of uh, in in more Western countries, they're still moving in that direction. And 
and, and when you look at some of the clusters that are forming there, I mean, they're just massive, right? Um, if you look at the, uh, the, the Pearl River uh, Delta, like there's all kinds of uh, giant cities that when you combine them all together, the uh, population amounts are extraordinary. Some of the characteristics of those cities are remarkable. And again, you capture these in graphics in the book, but maybe at a high level, you might tell us some of the characteristics of the city of the future, because you say, for the first time in human history, urban life has become the norm. No longer is it rural life and spread out, but everybody's mass moving towards cities. This in itself is um, just a, a profound piece, because only very, very recently did we flip from having the majority of the world living urban versus rural. And that's important in a bunch of ways. But um, one thing that we also cover in the chapter that I think probably to me is, is the most significant fact here is that 80% of global GDP is generated in cities. So even though it's only about 50-50, or, or maybe that ratio is just a little bit higher than that now, it's, it's over 80% of global GDP is generated in cities. So cities are, are where wealth is generated and where all this activity happens. And yeah, for the first time um, with having more people in cities and, and as uh, we implement technology, we're, we're finally starting to move towards uh, smart cities. And this is happening to different degrees in, in different parts of the world, of course. But it's being able to harness data and sensors and being able to you know, integrate all these different things together in order to solve problems that cities have, right? When you look at things like um, traffic or um, you know, coordination between, uh, between citizens or uh, you know, any of these, these types of things, we have all of these, th this ability to go and actually uh, harness some of these things now with technology, with sensors, and big data and being able to process it all in real time. So, um, so, the, so the futures of the or the cities of the future uh, are, are going to be, you know, really profoundly different. One of the things you find when you're mapping so much data is when, when you can map it visually and accurately, you see trends that you can't see by looking into an Excel sheet, or you can read by by reading many, many papers. And you find these kind of juxtapositions in many of the studies that you do many of the graphs that you create. And I thought one that was really, really fascinating was when you talk about, okay, we're more people are being educated, health is getting better across the planet. When people are more educated, they can rise out of poverty a little bit more, everybody helps everybody else, etc. Hopefully, that's definitely the trend that's happening. And as a result, we have a kind of a prosperity is almost like a contraception, people have less children then because they're more educated and all these kind of things that trickle into society. But that means more prosperity, but it also means more consumption. And I found it really, really interesting. There's a couple of graphs you share on that. And I'd love you to share your insights. And maybe I'll share one of those graphs over the screen as you're speaking. The way that we look at this and, and what we found interesting is that there's kind of two contradicting things that are happening here. Um, one of them is that between countries, um, you know, people are becoming more equal in terms of their, their wealth and prosperity. Um, so if you look at the amount of poverty that's being alle uh, alleviated in, in places like China, where literally hundreds of millions of people are coming out of poverty, or if, or if you look at other emerging markets like India and so on, you have more and more people that are moving into the middle class across the world. And in these charts, you can see this, 
Um, you can see in 1971, we, we show that only a very small portion of the global population was in these sort of richer quadrants. And as you move towards 2019, you can see the, the actual big, uh, a big hump of uh, people all over the world, uh, especially in Asia, have moved into this middle class segment. So I, I spoke that there is a bit of a, um, a contradiction or a bit of a um, interesting juxtaposition here. And, and where that relates is that the following chapter, I believe, we cover um, sort of this uh, concept that kind of clashes with this, which is actually rising inequality uh, within countries. So um, within uh, within countries like the U.S. or or other Western countries, generally speaking, you see that uh, more wealth is going to uh, you know the the wealthiest segments of the population and so on. And you know this has been uh, something that's been much talked about, obviously. Um, but it's just the juxtaposition of these two things that I think is really interesting. In Asia and uh, and these other places, you have more and more people moving to the middle class, and therefore globally we're more equal. But within countries, things can be, you know, obviously a little bit different. So it, it, it's really, uh, really interesting to consider those differences. And again, just for those people listening to us, we're showing those beautiful graphics as Jeff's explaining these different trends. Jeff, there's one that it was in between those two chapters. So you went from uh, rising prosperity to the gap within countries, but also something that's really evident for many of us. And actually, one of the things that's started to happen with the show is the changing of the guard of media. So there's no longer these major gatekeepers that there has been in the past, like there was like four, three or four major TV stations that had the lock and key to media access back in the 70s and 80s. And that's changed with the internet. Now, we have a democratization of the internet. That's great for getting content. But one of the problems that introduces is then do I trust that content? And who is behind that content? And is it paid for content? There's a huge issue here. So we have bonuses, and we have negative negatives with all these different trends. This one, though, is again, absolutely fascinating. We're in the media business. Uh, so this is something that we think a lot about. And, um, and again, this is something that until you look at the really broad picture and you, and you go back a little bit in time to see how things used to be, um, that's how you realize how different things are today, especially in, in something like this. And you alluded to the you know the small amount of uh, of TV stations that there used to be and, and so on. And, and and I do think that this is um, probably the most interesting way to look at this. Um, if you look at so I'm going to use the U.S. as an example, but almost every other you know Western country is going to have gone through a similar situation, right? Um, in the U.S., even if you just go back, um, you know, four or five decades, there was only a few networks that um, that were broadcasting uh, over you know television. And when you think of it that way, um, there's not really a lot of room to be uh, heterodox, right? Um, they kind of they're all kind of keeping each other in check because everybody is seeing um, these these different uh, you know stations, and they're all trying to reach a mass audience, right? So uh, whether you're NBC or whatever, you're trying to reach um, a mass audience with uh, with your program and your advertising, and so therefore you can't go too far off in any one direction. And what you see in the modern media landscape is you see uh, because there's so many different um, so many different you know websites or YouTube channels or 
um, you know, podcasters or whatever it is, people specialize in their own little niches, obviously. Um, but this also creates a lot of conflict because what happens is um, when you are uh, when you're covering a, a niche, um, you tend to want to with the the way that social media algorithms work, you you want to get your audience um, excited and you want them to be interacting with your stuff and you you want to have that engagement and and that's what is going to lead to the clicks and that's when it, what's going to lead to you know, eventually ad dollars or subscription dollars or, or whatever, however you're monetizing basically. But it creates the, a bit of a trap, I think, um, where uh, even though we have all of this different content, which is amazing in, in so many different uh, niches and specialties and people doing deep dives and this stuff, it also creates a situation where, um, you know, some of these uh some of these media companies, um, you know, loosely defined as, you know, a- across all these different uh, types of channels and so on, you know, they're trying to drive, they're ultimately trying to drive clicks and, and, and engagement. And so they're going to do things like, you know, the outrage or, or the fear or whatever is going to get people to uh, click on things and, and, you know, get, look at ads or, or whatever. And Fox News is sort of the, the first example of this, but uh, obviously MSNBC and, and other networks have sort of um, taking the same uh, approach, but by covering one specific niche and 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 um, and catering to one specific audience, whether it's you know right wing or left wing or whatever, um, you can rile that audience up and get them excited, and 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 they're gonna be super involved with the the type of stuff that you do, and and you're now creating your own sort of truth within that audience, um, and that's how you uh, empower your advertisers and so on. And, 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 it's, and so it's creating a really unique dynamic in the media industry. We can't cover trends without covering the environment. Um, it's everywhere in the news. It's literally all around us. And you cover that in a beautiful chapter. And there's a again, a graphic that's really telling and I, I re- I'm going to share this one on LinkedIn, because I really want people to see this because we have a lot of availability heuristic, where the latest piece of news we hear we think is the truth of, for example, where do emissions come from? And you map out all the emissions, where do all the emissions come from? What industry do they come from? Are they coming from individuals? And yes, you showed that most households lead to only 10% of those emissions. So we can play a part in that. But you map out where all the other emissions come from. This is a brilliant graph. As with anything, it's, um, you know, things are more complicated and more complex than uh, we all wish they would be. Um, and while it's easy to say, you know, hey, um, you know, emissions, uh, if you shut down X, Y, Z, uh, that's going to lead to, uh, you know, that's going to solve the emissions problem. That's just not quite how it works. I mean, everything is connected together, right? And so the global emissions breakdown. So we use a tree map to break down global emissions between industry, agriculture, transport, buildings, and waste, and also other energy. And I mean, it's, it's a complicated picture, right? Um, you have things like um, the creation of chemical and, and petrochemicals being 6.7% of emissions or livestock and manure, manure adding up to 5.8%. Um, transport, of course, is an interesting one. That is an area where I, I think obviously a lot of progress can be made. And, and when you look at electric cars and things like that, you hope that that's an area where a big impact can be made. Um, on the road, that accounts for 11.3% of global emissions, right? So I, I think that, you know, and actually, it's also funny, aviation, 
which is an area where um, you see people getting mad at celebrities using their private planes and things like that. But aviation is 1.8% of emissions. So um, you look through all of this and um, you, you start to get some ideas of, of where we can maybe realistically make a big impact on the emissions front. In a cleverly titled section of the book, you call it ripple effects. So one of the ripple effects is water. And one of the things you show there is that, again, I was unaware of this because you, you don't really hear about this, but rising conflict because of water and claiming who owns which water across different territories is on the rise because this has become such a precious resource across the world, particularly with rising populations and urbanization. And we've seen throughout human history that whenever there's a valuable resource, there's always going to be conflict. Um, and, and so water, of course, is uh, one of those things that's extremely valuable. We, we need it. Um, and, and actually, part of the, I think part of the reason why we don't think of it as valuable is that in, um, in most societies, um, like at least in Canada, where I'm based, it's, it's basically free and you don't really think about it, right? But um, imagine being in some of the places where, uh, where water really is uh, becoming a, a scarce resource. And we do have a, a map that um, projects out country level water stress. And I think that that's something that's, um, that's really useful to take a look at, to get a sense of, of where these problems are starting to occur. Um, they are starting to, around the Mediterranean, it's starting to become an issue um, if you go into uh, Central Asia. So um, whether it's you know, sort of the Middle East or whether you're going more towards um, Iran and, and Pakistan and uh, Kazakhstan and places like that. Um, that those are the areas that are, are having the, um, the, the biggest, um, starting to have the biggest challenges ar around water. And, and of course, in, in places like um, India and Africa, which are, are, have vast populations and, and relatively limited water supplies, uh, you know, there's going to be issues there as well. But yeah, when you go going back to uh, conflict, um, the violent incidents associated with water have been rising significantly uh, throughout the years. And, and if you look at the graph, it looks like an exponential graph. Um, if you go, if you're looking back 70, 80 years, it's, it's barely showing up at all. And only in the last two decades have these incidents rapidly increased. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's, it's going to be something that requires um, significant thought from uh, from policymakers, especially in the countries where this is uh, particularly an issue. One of the things you mentioned there was travel, for example, or aviation, and how the emissions aren't that bad, but they're still there. And you said it's a place where we can make significant improvement through electrification. And of course, you cover that. And again, uh, and I want to emphasize for audience listening and those people watching us, we are only showing probably 10% of the amount of data that's visualized in the book. But this beautiful graph about what does electrification look like really tells a lot. And so again, we're looking at something that is, is basically a, um, this is a, a tree map style graph that's, that's showing, uh, it, it basically breaks down transportation, industrial, residential and commercial. So the major sectors um, where uh, energy is being used and it breaks them down based on how much of that sector is currently um, non-electric versus electric. And so the insight from this is basically, if electrification is happening sort of across the board, 
Um, as we see with um, electric vehicles, as we see in industry and and other places, like you're starting to see more and more things that are battery powered that are um, that are are running off of uh, that could run off of things like renewables and so on. Um, as you start to see uh, that happening, um, this graph kind of breaks down where the potential lies to further electrify things, and so. This is it's a little bit old. This this is uh, 2015 data, but it's an amazing breakdown that that gives you a sense that um, okay. So in the commercial space, there's not a ton of electrification potential because uh, lighting, space cooling, refrigeration, all of these things are are already electrical. But if you look at something like transportation, basically, and this is why there's such a big opportunity in electric vehicles and and uh, you know, across the board, whether it's you know light duty vehicles or freight trucks or whatever, the basically the whole space is um, completely non-electric for the most part. Um, in recent years, we've made you know a little bit of a dent in that, but still, it's this massive area that um, that every year uh, there's 28. Um, quads and, and, and a quad is a quadrillion BTUs. Um, there's a ton of energy that gets used in that sector. Uh, and if you were to be able to convert that or half of that or you know whatever to electric, it makes a huge difference from an emission standpoint and from an energy standpoint. This next one will speak to the work that you do. And actually something that I've noticed again doing the show, Jeff, was that people like the deep dives into the content. But I've started doing a new series called Innovation Bites, which are like 10 minute episodes, and people are loving them. <laughs> and I get it. But I'm always kind of reluctant. I'm kind of going, you're only getting a sliver of the data. And I mentioned at the start in the introduction that you are a sense maker, you make signal from noise, and you take it down, you bring it and you hand it to people. And it's a it's a real skill. And it's a necessary skill as the late Edward Wilson said that these sense makers are going to be so valuable in the future where there's information overload. And there's a great graph that you have later on in a chapter where you talk about this digital world and the need to be more human, the need to be able to decipher data in that world. You talk about the our search for meaning in that. So looking for meaning in the noise, being able to not just give somebody data, but kind of go, well, here's the Here's the insight from that data. And this is such a valuable skill. And I'm going to share the graphic of that. And perhaps you'll speak to this one. And this isn't going to be our most uh, colorful or, uh, or data driven graphic, obviously, but it's an equation that, um, that we think a lot about. And the equation is simply that um, utility, the amount of meaning that, that people get divided by time, um, it, it, it's a function of all of the all of the meaning that you're able to create, how how that in, individual interprets information, and then dividing that by the amount of time it takes to consume that information. And so the reason why that's important is because we live in an age where attention spans are limited, and also where data is uh, doubling every two years. And so you know we only have such a limited amount of time where we can actually look and interpret and understand what's going on. Yet um, with so much data out there, uh, which I mean, this is kind of the purpose of the book, right? There's so much data out there that if you allocate your time to the wrong things, you're getting no utility at all. And so we put we we put a lot of thought into um, in, into this. And and if you in my keynote talks and things like that, I always cover this because I think it's so important. Anyone who's communicating or anyone who has a story to tell, 
uh, or is trying to get an audience to understand you know, something, whether it's their business or, or whether it's a, a particular opportunity. Um, to me, I always think about what utility am I giving them with the information I'm presenting? Basically, it's, it, it's, it's that, you know, it's the meaning of that information divided by how much time you're taking from them. And one other quote that we have at the beginning of the book that I think that really talks to this as well, from, but from a slightly different angle, and, and this is what we opened the book with, uh, it's a quote from E.O. Wilson, which basically says, we are drowning in information while starving for wisdom. The world henceforth will be run by synthesizers, people able to put together the right information at the right time, think critically about it, and make important choices wisely. And this kind of sums up that equation as well, right? It's, it's, um, it, it's really thinking about um, there's so much information out there, yet people find that they're not able to access the most important and insightful tidbits. And, uh, and the people that are able to figure that out, the people that are able to take all of the world's information and figure out what's important and communicate it in a way that people can understand, that's really a, a massive life skill that will help anyone in any particular field move forward. That's often overlooked, Jeff. People often ask me, why is there... You know, why do leaders have to take courses on storytelling or presenting? And you're kind of going because they need to make sense for people. Because if people don't in an organization don't have a story, they'll make up their own story. And because of that thing you mentioned about the vast array of content from so many different sources means that it's easy to create a, a conspiracy theory. And if you're not leading that story as an organization as a leader, your company's in trouble and people will be fearful without the information as well. So that's why I think you're, what you do is so important as well. But one of the problems of all this data is it's being collected. And in a later chapter, in a later part, a later signal that you identify amidst the noise is the data moats. And this is a term that some people won't know, perhaps you'll expand on that. But there's a graphic where you share and it's almost like a checklist and you show each of the big tech companies and what data they're collecting. And it's particularly interesting. I, I found, because I, we're reading this, Jeff, you must have wrote this, so it's released in 2022, but you must have wrote it maybe in 2020 or 2021. And it's almost prophetic, so many of the things, because you talk about cybercrime, you talk about data moats. You, one of the things I felt was you'd also talk about how big tech is rising in the stock market, but what happens when it doesn't? And I was like going, uh oh, because if our data is in these companies that are now tightening the belt, what are they going to be doing with it? Are they going to be milking that data as much as possible? And these are the questions that arise from reading a book like yours. So maybe we'll talk to that gra that checklist that you created. So, th so there are two different sides to um, the data as a moat story. So the first side is you know, what you're talking about here, which is um, sort of from a, uh, from the privacy side and, and from the consumer side. Um, and I mean, I, I think sort of the most, um, the insight that we can start from there is, is basically that if, if you're not paying something for something, then you typically are the product, right? And, um, and, and for Google and for Facebook, these are, are definitely, um, and for much of social media, right? This this is the truth, right? Which is like they're they're trying to use you to uh, to monetize uh, through advertisements or or what have you. And 
to best place those advertisements. They're, they're trying to get as much data as possible uh, from as many people as possible. And then they're trying to take that and, um, you know, they're trying to algorithmically fill that, uh, you know, in the best possible way. Um, all these companies, um, you know, they're trying to build up massive databases of user data in order to, um, to I mean, eventually create uh, insights that will that will monetize them. But sure, there are definitely um, privacy issues uh, from that that side. Um, the other way to think about this is um, the term moat that we use is a, a term that um, Warren Buffett uses uh, quite a bit uh, and, and is pretty common in in business parlance, which is basically that um, you know, if you have a uh, a business that you want to protect, you build a, uh, an economic moat around it. So you build something that makes it really hard for others to uh, to match what you're doing, right? So if if you look at um, you know traditionally speaking, economic moats would be things like um, you know like scale, right? Um, economies of scale. So if you look at Walmart in the 1990s, for example. Um, they had such incredible distribution and such an incredible size that no one was able to compete with them, uh, you know, in a sustainable way. Um, or if you look at, uh, you know, you know, there's other more, you know, process-driven improvements. Like if you look at Toyota, no one was able to match their their process for how they made cars, and so that was an economic moat for them. Um, but what's happened in recent years, and um, and this is where it ties in with with privacy, is the moat that these big tech companies have built around them is is not around innovation necessarily, and it's not around um, you know some of the areas that you might think. Um, the biggest moat comes from the amount of user data that they have, and the fact that um, you know they're able to take literally billions of people's data, and some of these different variables that we're showing here. Um, in this sort of foundations part, they're, they're able to take all of this and they're able to uh, use big data and AI and machine learning and things like that to crunch the numbers to figure out how they can best monetize it and, and best take advantage of it. Not only that, but it makes it really hard to compete with them because algorithmically, um, it's really hard, for example, for someone to come up with a new search engine and compete with Google. Google has so much indexed and they have so many insights about um, what drives behavior and, and what's the most effective and, and what people will find to be the most useful result. That data is what creates the, the moat that makes it really hard to compete with them. Uh, and, and you can think about this the same way for all these other things too, right? With Amazon, um, you know, obviously Amazon does have a big logistical advantage that they, they've built up over time, but also the fact that they can tell me, uh, hey, you haven't bought this for a while, um, you should probably buy this again, or it looks like you're buying this. And whenever someone buys this, they really find it useful if they also buy this. The fact that Amazon can do that so flawlessly uh, really is a, a big advantage to anyone that's trying to compete with them. So one of the problems with all that data moats and storing all that data is, of course, cybercrime. There's a whole chapter on cybercrime. There are some great visualizations bringing to life the fact that, for example, so few cyber criminals get caught. I think you said three in 1,000 get caught, which is just such a high rate of success for cyber criminals. And there's so much money at stake as well. But I let our audience check out that, that chapter to go in deeper. 
I'm pretty interested in getting on to, for example, technological advancement and progress. You cover Moore's Law in a beautiful way, and this is part of the series, the Exponential series, where we've talked about Moore's Law, we've talked about exponential change, and again, beautiful graph here where you bring multiple iterations of Moore's Law to life. Again, I'll let you do the speaking over the graph. Again, for those people at home listening rather than watching us, you will get such a better experience by having a view of this, or even better, get a copy of the book and listen to it, listen to the man himself as he's talking over it. I think most listeners are going to be familiar with with Moore's Law. Obviously, um, it, it's been a, a, a trend that has been around for a long time, and it and it has um, you know the impacts have been astronomical. But I, I think so. So this graph that we have it basically shows the amount of calculations per second per thousand um, dollars, and it shows what's happened over uh, a period of you know the very beginning days of of computation, going all the way till. Um, till today. And, um, you know, uh, the, the most obvious insight is that, um, that computers and computation is becoming cheaper, but I think what's important to note, and maybe the, the part of that, you know, less people think about is, um, when computing reaches a point where it's, you know, costing fractions of a cent to do what it used to take, you know, thousands of dollars to do, when you get to that point, which is what we're basically approaching now, um, where computation ability is um, is kind of like water. It's 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 um, it's important, but it's uh, but it's also free in a lot of cases, right? When you, when that computation is uh, is so cheap that you can basically do anything with it, what does the world look like? And when people are talking about artificial intelligence or uh, or things like that. This is kind of the the world that they're they're looking at. They're looking at what if uh, what if AI can compute anything we want at basically zero cost? We could basically have it everywhere because again, it's it's just a all it is is a um, a, a script that's that's using data, right? And so we can we could have it everywhere, doing everything, and um, and, and that's kind of the you know what I would point to as um, as where this trend goes, right? When, when computation ability is near universal and completely cheap, um, that's that, that's the kind of world that we will eventually be living in, and that's what this chapter is kind of hinting at. We're showing, um, you know, the performance of supercomputers, or um, one other graph that we show is the shrinking timeline of technological breakthroughs, which basically just shows um, if you were to go back in in time in the uh, you know fourteen hundreds, fifteen hundreds, sixteen hundreds. The amount of key breakthroughs that we had were so sparse and and in between. Um, so we have, you know, the printing press and the telegraph. Those are three hundred years apart. Steam engine, telescope. These are you know eighty years apart. Um, but then when you get into the last twenty years, you have um, a, you know a wild uh, amount of innovation happening, and that's because of of Moore's law, because of this this computation ability. You have um, the iPod, the Human Genome Project which again is calculated through this kind of technology, graphene, Facebook, iPhone, the Large Hadron Collider, Google driverless car, iPad, CRISPR, uh, which I think we'll be talking about in, in a bit here. But all of these things are all happening uh, in such a short time frame. And, and, um, and that's, it's important to realize that that time frame is going to continue shortening because of the exponential nature of this, right? Um, 
as Moore's law shows, you know, it's an exponential graph and it's an exponential change. And so even though we think things are happening fast now, they're going to happen even faster in the next five, 10 years. That's a beautiful segue then for CRISPR, because CRISPR and gene editing has been something that's really even beaten Moore's law. It's going faster than Moore's law, which is held pretty stable until we get into the world of quantum computing, etc. But maybe we'll jump onto CRISPR because gene editing is something again, that's phenomenal. And the graphs you have here are beautiful on CRISPR. I love the one where you actually show how CRISPR works. Perhaps we'll start there. So we have a, uh, a three step diagram that basically shows how CRISPR works. And for, for people that aren't familiar with uh, CRISPR, the term, um, it, it stands for clustered regularly interspaced short palindromic repeats. And so that sounds like a bunch of mumbo jumbo. Um, but basically, it's a, um, it's, a, it's a process that allows um, you to go in and take a snippet of, um, of DNA and to insert, uh, you know, using, uh, using a certain sequence uh, of RNA and putting it into that. Uh, it allows you to adjust the, uh, the genome of the, uh, it allows you to basically edit the genome of, of whatever you're working with. Um, and, and so that's the main insight that you need to take from it is that it's, it's a cheap and efficient way to make edits to genomes. What is interesting is that it's, it, the applications aren't in just one area. They're spread out across all kinds of things. Um, you can edit genomes for, uh, you can look at it from sort of a medicinal point of view where you're um, developing drugs by uh, making these edits, or you can um, do surgery uh, with, with this kind of thing. Um, when you're looking at biology, uh, of course, you can, uh, you can uh, with plants and animals, there are different modifications that can be made there. And of course, there are also ethical questions about that as well. Um, and then you get into biotech. And this is an area that I, I think that is um, really interesting because um, you can actually uh, play around with things like fuel and energy and um you may be able to make energy more efficient, or maybe you can make uh, energy uh, less uh, CO2 intensive or whatever. Um, and then of course, food, we, we've seen these kinds of um, implementations uh, over, over time just by uh, you know, selective growing crops and things like that. But with CRISPR, you can go and make very deliberate changes uh, into the genome of food. Uh, and then materials as well, right? We might be able to create super materials that we can't even think of today by making these kinds of modifications at, at, at that sort of, you know, most fundamental and base layer. Yeah, it's a great, that's a great chapter. And again, in that chapter on trends, you talk about 5G, you talk about space race, the commercialization of the space race, there's loads, loads in there that we're going to skip over for the moment, because Jeff's time is limited. But one of the things Jeff, and it's probably less sexy, is the markets and money. And it's just hyper relevant at the moment. Because again, I mentioned how prophetic some of the trends that you had pointed out are, and how they've come to fruition. And you could see the trend headed that way. And you're like, uh Oh, and for example, you talk about rising debt across different countries. And again, there's beautiful graphs across that chapter, but one in particular, we might share. Government debt was uh, and debt in general has been on the rise for um, a very long time. And this is actually also very uh, uh, linked to some of the other chapters that we have in the money and market section, such as um, falling interest rates, which 
historically they've um, they've fallen over the last, um, I believe, 700 years. Uh, it's it's been a very long term trend, and rates are going up now. But uh, within the context of this historical trend, they're all, they're still very very low. Um, but very very low rates means that it's very cheap to borrow debt, and that is the main reason why government debt and also if you look at corporate or if you look at consumer debt all these numbers have been uh have been skyrocketing over recent years um and, and so interestingly um the the charts that we have here in the book um they're showing uh typically the rise in government debt from 2007 to 2020 and this is not taking into consideration um, the massive stimulus programs that have come out of COVID uh, that have added to those numbers drastically. So um, if you look at um, the numbers per country here, we're looking at increases that are, um, for, for the US, for example, debt increased 233% between 2007 and 2020. Or if you look at, um, you know, even... Uh, something like France or the UK. The UK has gone from uh, has had 163% increase in debt. Um, France is up 67%. Um, so all of these numbers are you know very very important numbers to consider because uh, debt is one of those things that when it, it's not troublesome until it becomes troublesome. Um, and, and when it becomes troublesome, that is uh, often when you know it, rates are increasing, like they are now, uh, and the cost of maintaining that debt begins to increase. Um, and we're already starting to see that in the U.S., for example, the um, in, in the latest uh, uh, Congress budget and, and so on, they've they've guessed, um, you know, or they've estimated that uh, the rate of servicing debt is going to increase to a, a huge portion of the budget next year. Um, and, and so this is going to start having an impact on everything else. Um, and, and as you mentioned, this is this is something that has been um, somewhat prophetic because um, even though debt was rising earlier before COVID, COVID has added so much to this. And uh, there's been so much, so many stimulus programs, and and so much of you know, and, and much of this has been very helpful to the people that um, that they've served. But at the same time, um, it's created a situation where uh, it really becomes hard to ignore the uh, the debt that is accumulated when it when the cost of serving it, servicing it becomes so high. The flip side of that is then interesting interest rates declining, and you show a graph. Oh, man, I don't know where you got the data on this because it goes right. You must have been in touch with the Medici family or something like that. So you went right back to the 1300s, and this graph is phenomenal. It tells so so much. So it's interesting that you mentioned the Medici family because um, some of the data points that are, are super early on this chart actually are coming from uh, from some of the earliest uh, debt instruments that were issued um, a very long time ago. And often in those kinds of situations, um, it was you know uh, family b banks or some of the very first banking institutions that have ever been created that were uh, that were issuing you know different bonds and things like that. So. What this is calculating is it's showing these are the real rates um, going from all the way um, back in time, uh, as far back as we can go, all the way to today. Um, and, and what's interesting is that, you know, historically for the first um, many centuries, um, rates had, had been well above uh, 5%. Um, and in more recent times, in the last few centuries, you know, 
between two and, and five or 6% is kind of normal. Um, but as you get into more modern times, you're starting to approach zero. And of course, over the last, you know, uh, since the financial crisis, essentially, um, we've had uh, either near zero rates or zero rates um, in, in many places in the world. Um, and so there's two things that's worth thinking about uh, here. I think one is that, um, so why is this happening? Um, there's a bunch of different reasons for this over time, but um, but certainly the fact that technology is able to make things so much cheaper, uh, you're able to provide so much value for so few dollars. Um, this is something that has a, a deflationary effect to it. And so um, that's part of the reason for this uh, over time. Um, but one other thing that's worth thinking about is that you know we see rates rising up more recently, uh, and we see inflation going up more recently, and um, and even if um, even if those rates are increasing, uh, they've been decreasing for 700 years. So um, it might just be a blip, or it might just be something that um, that you know. It, again, when you look at this 100 years from now, it might not even show up. There was a, another uh, piece that I found prophetic, given when you would have started doing the work on this, which was a uh, stock market concentration, and how the stock can almost mask so much that's really happening behind the stock market, because then there's access to the stock market, and the people who have money create more money, etc. And there's artificial inflation of the stock market, etc. And you dedicate a whole section of the book to money and markets. But particularly, there's a graph that is really revealing here. So when looking at the global stock market, um, or, or in this case, the S&P, which is the sort of um, representation of the, the, the biggest companies in uh, the US, and, and obviously many global companies um, go on there as well, uh, it, it's kind of the, you expect that it's quite vast, right? There's 500 companies on this index. You expect it to be very um, spread out or representative of all these companies. But the truth is, because it's a market uh, market capitalization weighted index, is that actually the biggest five stocks make up a huge chunk of the overall index. And when you're buying the S&P, you're actually buying uh, Apple, Microsoft, Alphabet, Amazon, and so on. And um, so this chart shows the rising concentration of the biggest companies within the uh, within the index. And at its low point uh, in 1995 or in 2015, that amount was closer to 11%. However, in more recent times, that number has actually increased to 23%. So of a 500 company index, 23% of the, the value of that index is driven just by five companies, uh, which is pretty wild when you think about it. And so what are the reasons for this happening? Um, well, again, it ties back into um, other parts of the, the book that we've, uh, we've been looking at. And, and so one of the, the, the parts that this ties into is the, the data moat chapter that we just talked about, um, which is that all of these big tech companies have created these massive uh, moats that make it really hard to compete with them. And also they're able to generate uh, cash flow and revenues at a rate that is really hard to, um, to match. And so because they're able to generate that cash flow so well, um, and, and because they have that protection, investors have valued these companies at very high amounts. And that's why they, uh, that's why they make up such a big portion of the S&P market capitalization.
So this kind of leads nicely to the idea of where well, it's not a nice t topic, but the, the decline in corporate le longevity. So we've seen huge disruption. And, and again, Jeff dedicates chapters to retail, frictionless retail. There's stuff in there and connected health, beautiful graphics throughout really, really useful for those people trying to make a case for investment as a startup or an entrepreneur or even as an innovator within an organization. But I really wanted to share that graph on dwindling corporate life longevity, because it's something we talk about a lot. And it's it's not a good thing, because there's many, many zombie organizations as well that are being fed drip fed by companies because they're too big to fail by countries because they're too big to fail as well. And this is all playing into the fact that corporate longevity is shrinking, because it's I think it's really linked to what you're saying. If the market cap of some of those big players is so big, they can afford to lower prices to kill other organizations. So it's almost artificial price lowering in order to just to kill off the competition and get that network effect of everybody going towards you. And I look at this in a couple of different ways. Um, so from so one of the stats that we have here is that between 2018 and 2027, it's expected that half of S&P 500 companies are going to fall off that list. Um, so that means that they're going from being one of the 500 largest companies to like not, not making the top 500. Um, so the, the good news here is that with so much turnover happening, that means that there's more room for entrepreneurs to bridge that gap, to come up with companies that can come and fill those holes. The bad news, as you already mentioned, is that if you are working for one of these organizations that is, um, for example, a, a top company right now, but maybe they're not changing fast enough to uh, implement systems uh, to take advantage of things like data, um, maybe they're not um, addressing uh, you know technology that they could add into the mix that could make a big difference. Um, you know, maybe there's other things. Maybe they have other issues that are are created in the current landscape, but. What's happening is that the companies that are not able to adjust fast enough, or they're not able to change their their value proposition fast enough to keep up, um, they're they're going to get replaced either by, as you say, you know, big tech is going to come in and and uh, and and try and um, you know substitute in, like for example, Amazon is trying to do in in the healthcare industry, or you have um, small startups that are able to disrupt these larger companies and, and come into the mix as well. So I, I see it as a, you know, a cautionary item for, uh, for folks that are, um, you know, in these bigger companies that, um, you know, what we're showing here, by the way, is, is that, um, corporate longevity, these, these companies that, uh, their average lifespan in the S and P index used to be 30 plus years. Uh, if you go back to around you know 1980 or 1995, um, but in more recent times, it's dropped to 22 years, and it's expected to drop to 12 years uh, within the next uh, in the coming years. And so, yeah, that just is it, just um, every threat is an opportunity, right? And it depends on where you are in in the mix. But I, I see this. I see the bright side of this, which is that uh, for entrepreneurs that want to make a big difference in the world, I mean. All these companies, they they don't have the same moats that um, that Apple or that Amazon have 
they're, they're, they're vulnerable. And, and if they don't make those changes, then you as an entrepreneur can come in and make a difference and you can create a big and massive company. Uh, and then when you do that, you're going to have to protect it because again, um, this, this sort of longevity co concept applies to everyone. I think that's a, a beautiful way to finish it because oftentimes when you cover this work, as you know, because you do a lot of keynotes and you do a lot of consultancy in this field, oftentimes when you're pointing out the trends that aren't going so well, people consider you're a naysayer when actually you're a gainsayer. You're trying to point out the opportunity in the trends as well. And this is getting on the right side of creative destruction, like you just mentioned there. And it's a pretty positive way to finish. I absolutely love the book, Jeff, you and the team just did a, a wonderful, a wonderful job. There's a copy up for grabs for our audience, just sign up to innovationshow.io newsletter. But just to just show for those of you watching like the, it's just beautifully laid out. And it, again, you get an e copy, you can copy some of the graphs, use them in your own graphs, help get a start in your company, get an investment in the company, get a project over the line within a big legacy organization. There's so many benefits to reading this. And it also gives you a different way of consuming so much data. So Jeff, bravo to you and the team. For people who are interested in finding you, Jeff, where can they find out more about your keynotes, about your work, about Visual Capitalist? Thank you so much. And um, before I go into that, I do want to give a shout out to our team because, you know, coming up with uh, the amount of data that we sifted through to put together the book. I mean, I didn't do it by myself. It was the whole team that, um, you know, they're putting together these ideas and the research and, and obviously um, not one person can create all the visualizations. So, um, you know, big shout out to our, our creative director and, and, and the rest of the team that put all that together. But, um, but yeah, in terms of finding uh, our work and, and uh, seeing what we do. Um, so, the easiest way to, to, to find our stuff is to go to visualcapitalist.com. Um, it's a free website. It has uh, all kinds of stuff that gets posted every day uh, that is in the same vein as, as what you see in the book. Uh, we're often covering uh, you know, the trends that we think are you know, shaping the, the future of the economy and, and technology. Um, so there's lots of stuff there. The other thing that you can do is um, you can subscribe to our daily email, which is free. Um, you can go to visualcapitalist.com slash subscribe to that. Or if you go to visualcapitalist.com, you'll see links to that. Um, we have about 350,000 people that get our daily email every day. Uh, and we send them something interesting every day uh, and say, hey, today, this is what we're looking at. And, um, and, uh, and yeah, there's lots of good stuff there. Beautiful. I have a, a quote that I pulled that I just thought absolutely encapsulates what you're doing and the mission as well. It's by one of the great science fiction authors, Isaac Asimov, and he said, the saddest aspect of life right now is that science gathers knowledge faster than society gathers wisdom. So Jeff, to you and the team, thank you for making helping us make sense of all the data out there, all the noise, and helping us gather more wis wisdom. It's been a pleasure talking to you, author of Signals, the 27 trends defining the future of the global economy. Jeff Desjardins, Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Don't forget, you can win a copy of Signals by signing up to the innovationshow.io newsletter where you get recaps of the episodes and a weekly Thursday thought every Thursday. I want to thank our sponsor, Zai. Before we finish up, boldly transforming the future of financial services with a suite of embedded products and services enabling businesses to manage multiple payment workflows and move funds with ease. You can find Zai at hellozai.com.